to the book of Philippians as we continue on in this study here today. Uh, we are in chapter two in this series called Joy-Filled Living. We're going to be covering verses two through 17 here. We looked at uh, two, was actually 12 and 13 last week. We're going to do a little bit of redundancy here and go back over it a little bit and cover it. I titled this morning's message, Live Like You Mean It. Can you say that with me? Live like you mean it. Yeah, and that's really what the Apostle Paul is is aiming for here, and that's our aim then this morning as well. So I'll have you read with me verses 12 through, I think I've got 18, actually, actually 18, I, I wrote that wrong, verses 12 through 18, and then let's take a moment here, and we'll pray together, and we'll jump into this. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I may uh, have not run in vain or labored in vain. And yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and the service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. If you would bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we thank you so much. As Larry said, we can come into church in a lot of different ways on a Sunday morning, some excited, some looking forward to what you have, some just out of just discipline, out of the, just the getting up on a Sunday morning and coming. But Lord, your mercies are new this morning. Lord, you have something fresh for each and every one of us. If Lord, we would only receive. And I pray today for all of us that Lord, you would meet us right where we're at today, but that God, you wouldn't leave us in that place. Lord, we need to be transformed. Larry was teasing even me before the service, you know, from glory to glory, we're being changed. But in the truest sense, we are. And Lord, may we really, as we look to you to change and to transform us, may we cooperate of all the things we can think of today, not fight you or, or come against you in any way. May we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling today, Lord. May we be not only pleasant, Lord, may we be a sweet sound, Lord, in your ear. May really the, the declarations of our heart and of our lives, may they be pleasing to you. Like the Apostle Paul, the, the last thing that we want to do in this life is, Lord, is to hurt you, is to disrespect you or to dishonor you. And Lord, we, we recognize at times we do, and we thank you for your amazing grace, Lord. Thank you for your mercies that your word says are new every morning. Thank you that your faithfulness is great. And so we exalt you, we honor you, we look to you this morning as the Apostle Paul would point us to you, Lord. We set our, our hearts afresh on you this day. We give you all the praise and the glory. We pray for John, Lord, we thank you for his life. We thank you for his ministry in our church. We pray that, Lord, you would bless him, bless uh, his time away with his family, with his wife, Lord. May you just continue to use him, Lord. Lord, just continue to anoint his life. We just lift him to you. Pray every blessing, Lord, would be his today that he would know, Lord, for, as his church family, just how much he's appreciated and how much he's loved for not just what he does, but who he is in you. And we thank you so much. Lift him to you as we pray in Jesus' name. And we all agreed saying amen? Amen. So, you know, before looking ahead this morning, we, we kind of want to go back a little bit, you know, and remember, you know, what brings us to this text this morning. If you recall, and I share with you almost every week that the Apostle Paul is writing this from a Roman prison, looking back to a time when he was in a uh, Philippian prison, and uh, the church there in Philippi was ministering to his needs and providing for him. And then as well, as I shared with you, he's writing uh, to exhort the church uh, to walk in unity. There's a couple women in the church that are experiencing disunity, and so he's appealing to Christ and what Jesus has done for us. You know, I, I, I say this often from the pulpit, you know, keep Jesus between you and everybody else and uh, life would be a lot better for, you know, for all of us. And so um, the Apostle Paul here, you know, he's obviously writing a, a thank you letter. Uh, just again, just very appreciative of what the church has done for him. And yet at the same time, he 
has a knowledge um, that the church is concerned. They're worried about him. He's, he's in prison. I mean, this is their leader. I mean, this is the, the, the guy who planted the church and, and uh, brought them, you know, he talks about, you know, uh, you've had many, you know, teachers, but you haven't had many fathers. And so he sees himself as a father in their faith, just like Timothy sees not as his biological son, but his son in the faith. It's a very, very close relationship. And so when the person who's been responsible for, you know, raising you and you say growing you all of a sudden is out of your life, I mean, that's a fearful thing. Just talk to any, you know, 18 to 20 year old who wants to get out of the house and then they find themselves out of the house. And the next thing, you know, that all of a sudden it's like, you know, being at home wasn't too bad. There was a sense of security and provision, you know, that was there. And they, they felt that and if not physically, they definitely understood it spiritually in the life of the Apostle Paul. But the Apostle Paul, he's reminding, you know, the church, and it's a great reminder for us all. You know, a lot of times people go, oh, that's the job of the pastor, right? I mean, that's, you know, okay, we have a pastor to take care of. We have a staff to take care of that. But that's actually not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the pastors or the staff of the church is there to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Uh, everybody has a job to do. And it's not just a physical job that you have or one that you make money at. And we all have gifts that God has given to us, you know, spiritual gifts that were endowed in our lives by our creator, not when we were born into this world, but when we were born again. And so uh, again, drawing those gifts out. And that's what makes every you know, church unique in that regard. Every church, every Christian church, one that names Jesus Christ as Lord, shares the same mission. And that is to what? to go into the world and make disciples, right, of all the nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which I guess is a great segue into a reminder of something I should tell you about, that yes, we do baptisms the last Sunday of the month. So if you've yet to be baptized in water, contact the church office and we'll help you accomplish that right after second service that last Sunday. So, um, but that's what the church exists for. Now, how every church fulfills that mission is unique to that church based on what? the gifts within that church. And that's what makes the body of Christ so exciting. And so the Apostle Paul is reminding the church here that, hey, we're, we're all in this together. It's not just me. He's not panicking. He's not fearful that he's in prison and he's exhorting them. He said, matter of fact, remember Paul would write, he would say that my imprisonment or my incarceration has done what? It has worked to the furtherance of the gospel. And that would be something that would be very difficult for them to really comprehend because they're going, wait, you're, you're the leader. I mean, you're in prison now. But Paul recognizes a few things that took place. Remember when he was in prison, I shared with you, I go, who, who actually was in prison? Paul or the, or the guards who were chained to him? You know, they'd go through shifts, right? I mean, and they're chained to him. They can't go anywhere. Yeah, that's, a, that's a, what you call a captive audience, right? And here he is sharing the gospel. And it says so effectively that what? He's, when he's writing this letter, he's, he's writing and he's appreciating those that are of Caesar's household. So not only did he minister to the Roman guards who had you know, care over him at that point, uh, but also the praetorium, the, the you know, Caesar's guards that would be like the elite forces, or you might say the secret service that surrounded Caesar. I mean, Paul had access to them and then just members of Caesar's household. And so Paul took full advantage of his ministry. And he, he's telling us, and it's something that you and I need to think about today when you think about where you're at in life. A lot of times people just you know, are unhappy in the situation that they're in. They feel like they're somewhat imprisoned. That could be you know, in, a, in a relationship, it could be in a job, it could be in so many different things in life. And yet there's, you know, this book is about joy-filled living, right? Paul, you know, is written some 19 times in this book about having this, really this deep-seated joy. And it's a joy that is not contingent upon, you know, what's happening in your life. I shared with you throughout this, this study that happiness has to do with your happenings. And there's going to be things in your life that aren't going to make you happy. But even the difficult things Paul is making clear, they can't touch your joy. Your, your joy comes from Jesus, and Jesus isn't moved. He's with you. What did he say? He said, I'll be with you, what, on Sundays? Did he say, I'll be with you on Sundays and Wednesdays, right? Or did he say, I'll be with you always, right? Even to the end of the age. And so it's important, you know, that we, we remember that. And so Paul is reminding the church, what I want to remind you of today as well, that God's in control. The leaders of the church aren't in control. You know, those that head up ministries, they're not in control. God is in control. He said promotion doesn't come from the east or from the west. It comes 
from God himself. Paul's reminding the church, you know, that yes, I'm in prison. Okay, that's a fact. But I'd ask you the same thing that Paul was exhorting them. Is the gospel in prison? No. You can put people in prison, but you can't put the gospel in prison. The gospel was still going forth, as Paul mentioned. You know, he was reaching the guards. He was reaching Caesar's household. The gospel can't be stopped. You know, in, in the truest sense, if it could be stopped, you know who can stop it? Me. You. Simply by not sharing it. You know? It's, if all the things that, you know, I remember it was, I think it was D.L. Moody uh, wrote about this years ago that, you know, the devil has no problem with the local church. He has no problem with the church making disciples as long as the church only meets within the church and doesn't do anything in the truest sense to try to reach the world outside the church. He doesn't care if we come and we have a good time and we have fellowship, we sing. But if we really took the gospel to heart and we realized that we're here uh, to seek and to reach the lost, you know, then that's something that the enemy doesn't want to take place. But he's not, in the truest sense, against the church. As we know, because you look at the, the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor that we read about in the book of Revelation, how quickly the church can turn inward. And that's why Paul is exhorting the church, and what we talked about last week is doing what? Is working out what God is working into you. And so that's what the Apostle Paul, like I said, bringing us up to speed is reminding us, you know, and then they, and he went back even further. And, you know, the reminder is, is the example is Christ himself. That's how he starts chapter two. You know, he says, let this, this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being God did not regard equality, said a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself to the point of becoming a man, to the point of death. He said, death upon a cross. He said, and that therefore then God gave him a name that was above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so he lays this out really clearly. He's going, Jesus is what it's about. It's pointing people to Jesus, amen? And, and that's not a difficult thing. You know, if you had to sell them yourself, that's where we would get ourselves into trouble. And, and unfortunately, that's why many people, even with regard to our personal testimony, don't want to say anything. They go, well, I'm kind of disqualified to say something about Jesus because I'm a sinner. Well, you'll always be a sinner. Do you recognize that? You'll always be a sinner and he will always be a savior. So you're always going to be in a perfect place to give him all the glory. But when people try to take that glory, then that's what stymies or it stops us from sharing our faith because we become ashamed or we become embarrassed about, you know, our behavior and our actions. You go, I can't say anything. Now, sometimes that's the best time. You know, the thief on the cross is still a great story, isn't it? You know, over 2,000 years later. I mean, he was a murderous thief who was caught and was convicted and was dying and was just moments away from his death. And he cries out from the cross, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Yeah, what a message. What a message. Verse 12, you know, so we look at that, you know, again, just as a reminder, remember that word, therefore? It says, therefore, my beloved. Remember, in some of your translations, it might have therefore, it could have because of, or it might even have wherefore. And, and really what Paul is saying is everything that you've learned previous to this, but he's talking about things doctrinally. And, and I think that sometimes in a, people have that same question. You, know, you read that and you go, well, how does it apply? And that's what he's about ready to do. He's saying everything that you've learned doctrinally live out in your life practically. That, that's what he's leading us to here. Just a practical way, again, to work out, you know, what God is working into us. And, and again, and if, you, if you, you know, believe it, then live it. That, that's really what the Apostle Paul is alluding to. And he says, you know, you've always obeyed. I want you to think about that in your own life. Do you always obey? I mean, look at what the Apostle Paul is saying about this church in Philippi. He says, as you've always obeyed. And, you know, and the interesting thing, and it's, I, I hope that you whether you get a Greek lexicon or you get some tool that you can understand, you know, a, the Greek language as it is in the New Testament, you will really appreciate the depth of, of what, because there's no understanding of this. When we write books, you know, as, as human beings, Solomon said this, he said, the writing of many books is what? It's wearisome. If you've ever tried to write a paper or write a book, it's, it's, I'm in the middle of a project right now, and it is very wearisome. It's just time-consuming. It drains your mind. It drains everything, all your resource that you have. 
And, and Solomon says, you know, the writing of books is wearisome, but he said, you know, the, the, the reading of them is even more wearisome. And for editors to sell books, what do they have to do? They got to put filler in there. There's content, but then there's a lot of filler, but that's not the case with the Bible. The Bible says that every word that's in your Bible, every single word is God-breathed. He said, you know, Jesus said this, he said, heaven and earth will pass away. He said, my word will never pass away. He said, you know, every jot and every tittle, what he was saying was every jot and every tittle is even every I has been dotted in scripture. Every T has been crossed. We use that as an expression, right? Hey, have you dotted the I's and crossed the T's? Well, well scripture does. There, there's no filler in scripture. So to take it to heart. And so when he, he uses that, that word obeyed there, what he was expressing in the Greek language means they hung on every word that was being said. Can you remember the last time you approached a Bible study that way? I mean, most people come and they listen to a Bible study and, the, you know, they're, they're, you know, half in for a little bit, most of the time out, um, you know, in and out, in and out. And, and we know that happened also in the Apostle Paul's life. Uh, remember the story in the book of Acts where, you know, a young man fell out of the, you know, second story window to his death. Paul, thank God he had the gift of, you know, uh, of, of healing. He was able to go down there and raise the guy from the dead. So he'd go back to the Bible study, you know, but again, people will tune in, they'll tune out. And yet Paul is saying here, he's going, but you have listened. You have hung on every single word that was said in the book of Acts. It says that they went and it says they listened to what Paul said. The Brians, remember? It says, and then they went home and they researched, they studied. Because it's not about you going, oh, I don't really care about what he has to say. It's not, again, what you think about me or any person who would be preaching or teaching from a pulpit. What you're expressing is your attitude towards God. When, and again, what did, what did Paul write earlier in Philippians chapter 2? He said, have this same what? Attitude. Attitude's an inside work, right? You know, it's that old expression, I love that, you know is who you really are is who you are when what? When nobody's looking. Who you really are is who you are when no one is looking. And so Paul is going, you have always obeyed. Because Jesus said, hey, you give eye service, or we call it lip service, right, to someone. You go, oh, you know, like we're here, you know, but we're not really here. We're not really intent, you know. And here's Paul going, but no, no, you, you, you have you know, obeyed. You're not here to try to justify. See, you can listen to a, a Bible study and what do you go? I don't agree with that because, and you have your own thought. Or you go, oh, you'll argue the point, you know, whatever the thing might be. Paul is saying of this church, how special they were is that they, they, they listened and they sought not to argue against it, but to seek how do I apply it? And that's how we should come, you know, to scripture. I've shared with you many times, you know, that we say amen, right? To a prayer. Amen means so be it. We should be saying amen before we ever read the Bible. We, we pray it. Jesus taught us to pray it in the Lord's Prayer, right? He said, our, our Father, what? Who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, what? Thy will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. You really thought about that and what that implies in the life of a believer. And Jesus said, pray this way every day. That's how we should pray. God, I want to align my life with what's going on in heaven. And you go, man, I don't have any idea because what? We haven't, we're not even seeking God. We're not even seeking his will, but he has a will for our life. He has a perfect will. He has a permissive will. You know, we see these, you know, working itself out in scripture. You know, again, he says, work out your own salvation. You know, again, Ephesians 2.10 reminds us we are his workmanship. Okay created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now get this in Ephesians 2.10, look what it says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When did God prepare you for the works that he has for you today? Is it just today? You go, no, it says before the world ever was, before you were ever even born. Isn't that amazing? That's beyond, obviously, our ability to comprehend it. You know, people can claim it or, you know, but really, this is one of those things that you go, like Isaiah, God, your ways are high above my ways, and they're beyond finding out. But I am just glad that you had a plan for my life. I, I am grateful that it includes me, and that, you know, if I really believe that, think about that. If I really believe that, what implication should it have upon my life? You go, no wonder Paul could have joy, right? And that joy was 
immovable because it wasn't based on circumstance. I mean, God had already called it, you know, before the world was ever even fashioned. God had a plan for your life. You were his workmanship. And if God brought you to it, what has he promised? He'll see you through it, right? And that's just learning to stand on the, on the promises of God. And so what are we called to do? Paul's live our life. Live your faith like you mean it. Look at verse 13. It says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God is working in you. He's working in your life so that his life can do what? Can get out of you. You know, you have a conscience, right? Have you ever, have you ever had God whisper something in your conscience that he wanted you to do? How many by, by admittance, okay, I'll raise my hand first so you're not alone in this, but how many have ever had God whisper something in your conscience for you to do and you didn't do it? Raise your hand. Okay. And just, it's just a great reminder that we're not just sinners by accident, we're sinners by choice, okay? But when you think about this, God is working something in your life so that you can work it out. Because people, they get this confused. And, and it's taught so wrong that, you know, you have to work for your salvation or Jesus died for your past sin, but you're responsible for your present and future sin. You go, thank God that isn't the case. But unfortunately, through bad teaching, it, it gets taught that way. But God is working in all of us. And, we, and you can recognize it because I know the question comes up. You go, I don't know, is, is, does God really work in my life that way? And you go, I hopefully just answered that for you. They, and you go, yeah, he does. He's whispered to all of our consciences and he's told us things to do. And praise God when you did it. And you think about when you did do it, it might've been a fearful thing. It might've been, it might've scared you, I mean, to death, but you did it. And then what did you experience? Joy, a peace, a happiness that you go, man, I did what God told me to do. You know, he's never going to lead you astray. Amen. He's never going to lead you down the wrong path. But maybe, you know, this still is a struggle for you. And I want you to think about this, you know. God works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So God is working in us, right, to get something out of us. He wants it to come out of our life. He wants it to be expressed to those that are around us. It's like this. It's like the, this guy comes to a, a, a stoplight and he gets to the stoplight and he's one car back. And the light turns green and the car in front of him doesn't go. So he's looking and he can see the guy's got his head down. And if you, you can tell the guy's on his cell phone. He's, you can see both hands are not on the steering wheel. Guy's on the cell phone. So he, he looks and he sits there for a second. And he starts honking. Honk, honk, honk. Guy doesn't move at all. Goes on through the whole light till finally the guy looks up and the light turns yellow. So the guy punches it, goes through the intersection. He's gone down the road. So now the guy pulls up and he's hitting a red light. So what he's doing, he's still honking, rolls his window down, gives the, what do they call it, California peace sign, as it were, to the guy as he's driving away. And then, you know, do you ever get, and again, I don't, I, I counsel a lot of people. I've never had these thoughts or feelings myself. I just, I just know. It's like Apostle Paul. I know a man 15 years, you know. Uh, no, but you go, here he is. He's pounding on the steering wheel. He's mad. The guy's driven off. He's still mad. You see him, he, and he's just, his hands are flying in the car and he's just mad and then the light turns green and he goes he goes about a quarter of a mile and all of a sudden a police officer pulls up behind him pulls him over orders the guy out of the car onto the ground and the police officer comes up and the guy's like what's going on what's going on and he said sir he says just you know cuffs him raises him to his feet and he says uh you know i need your driver's license i'll get it you know registration and look at it and the guy's what is going on and he goes i believe the car is stolen and he goes the car's not stolen i've owned this car for seven years and he said well sir i was in the parking lot right next to the stoplight he says where you were at and he said i noticed that you were honking just i mean over and over again at the car that was in front of you and you were making you know obscene gestures and he goes i could tell from your lips i mean just you know the, the profanity that you were pouring out on that that person and he said and then well, you know, once they, they, they took off, he said, you know, you were there and you were still just, you were out of control. You were losing it. And he goes, and so I, I started looking at it. He goes, well, when the light turned green, he said, I noticed on your bumper, it said, it had the name of, you know, probably the largest Baptist church in town on it. And, it. and on your license plate holder, it said 
follow me to Sunday school. And I go, and then you had one of those cross Christian thing, fishy things on there. And he said, I just thought to myself, this car is stolen. <laughs> and he goes, and that's why, you know, I pulled you over. And you go, so what, what's the point of that in a humorous way that hopefully would stick in our minds is that what was in the car didn't match what was outside the car. You get it? And that's exactly what the opposite of what God wants to do. He wants whatever's happening inside of us to get to the outside of us. Because didn't he accuse the Pharisees of being much like that? He said, you guys are like whitewashed tombs, right? I mean, you, you, you know, it looks really good. You got the stickers, you got the stuff, you got everything on the outside. He goes, but inside, you know, it's the California peace sign. It's the vulgarities, it's the profanities, it's the frustration and everything else. And remember, who I am and who you are is who we are when nobody's looking. And Paul, he's, he's reminding us, you know, that God is working in our lives for that very reason to work these things out of us. If you believe in Jesus, what? Live like it. That, that's the message. It's really so simple. Look at verse 14. He says, do all things without complaining and disputing. Now that does not, I'm looking out. It doesn't look like any of you guys. Okay. All the people that need to hear this today, they're not here. Okay. Thank God for that. You know, I mean, is that a little convicting? Do all, what did he say? Does he say do some things? What did he say? Yeah, if you look in the Greek language, I mean, try to look for that, that loophole. When you look up the word all, guess what it means? All. There's, there's, no, there's no way around. He says, do all things without complaining and disputing. Okay? And again, what is this? He's just given the church, you know, practical application. You know, like I said, there in verse 12, when he said, therefore, he was reminding the church of something, you know, doctrinal. You know, when you go back and you look at the early part of chapter two, and he says, have this mind that was in you, that was in Christ. And Jesus humbled himself. And you go, okay, I get all that. But how does that, what's, how do you practically do that? Well, here it is in verse 14. This is the practical aspect of our faith. How do you live it out? He says, all things, all things. Did you find yourself before you came to Christ that that was really easy to do is to complain about all things. You didn't have to practice. It's just, it's just natural. That's the natural man. We just complain. We dispute everything. And yet, you know, we read in first Thessalonians five, 16 through 18, it says, rejoice. What rejoice always, always when always the verse, every believer grows to hate at some point, always somebody else remind you that you're complaining about something. They go, Hey, what does the Bible say? Rejoice always. And shut up. Shut up. I don't want to hear that. Oh, I know you didn't want to hear it, but you need to hear that. Shut up. I don't rejoice always. Pray without what? Ceasing. Shut up. Yeah. In everything, give thanks. You cross the line. Get it. Just click, hang up. That's done. You know, you want to make somebody really mad? Just read them this verse. You know, we, in everything, give thanks for what? This is, a, this is an idea that God has. Now, what does it say? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. As a pastor, you know, people, Pastor Mike, I just, what do you think God's will for me in my life is? Do you really want to know? That's right. I go, please don't shoot the messenger. Don't hit me. But he says, this is his will for your life. Rejoice always. Are you rejoicing? No. Okay, well, that's his will. How about, are you praying without ceasing? <sighs> no. Nah. Are you giving thanks for everything? Why are you kidding me? Well, okay, well, that's his will for your life. Let's start there and we'll move on to deep stuff. You know, it's like, oh, oh, man. And so again, what's Paul reminding us? You know, what God is doing in you, okay, you should do before an unbelieving world. Working out what God is working in. See, complaining really in scripture, when you study this, the Greek language, complaining isn't complaining to other people so much. Complaining is complaining to God. That's what Job was doing, right? He was, he was complaining to God. And sometimes, you know, we, we don't really make that connection. But when you think about grumbling, that's what we do to other people. We grumble to other people. We complain to God. We grumble to other people is really what, you know, 
Paul is talking about. And just to understand this, grumbling is not a spiritual gift, okay? It's important that we recognize that. You ever heard that expression, your attitude is the key to your altitude? They call, you know, an altimeter, you know, a pilot will refer to an altimeter as the attitude meter. And that's what it is. If the nose is up, the plane is flying. If the nose is down, it's either landing or it's crashing, okay? And in most cases, it's crashing. So your attitude, and that's what he's really talking about here, is your attitude is the key to your altitude. Verse 15, it goes on, it says, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You look there in, in verse 15. So he's answering you know, the why question even before we ask it. You know, you know Has a teacher ever been, been speaking and you're thinking as they're talking, I've got a question. How do I do that? How, how do I live out this faith? You know, how, how do I really live what I believe? And, and Paul, you know, being under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, anointed of God, he is answering that question before it's even being asked. That's what he's doing. He knows the church. He knows what they're thinking. He's thought it himself. And he's telling all the church, do all things without complaining, without disputing for the simple fact that what? The world is watching you. Somebody's watching you. Somebody's watching your faith. They're watching how you respond. You know, someone once uh, asked Dr. James Dobson on his radio program. I remember, you know, when I first gave my life to the Lord and I was listening to his radio program and uh, the person called up and they said, why does God allow Christians to suffer? And they went on to express that they had a child. This was a parent that had a child that died. And they were just like, why would God do that? I mean, you, that, didn't we get saved to get saved from all that? And in Dr. Dobson, one of the most humble explanations, he said, you know, I don't really know the, the full depth of, of that, that answer. He said, but I know it partially. And he asked them first a question. He said, do you believe that God allows for non-believers for their children to die? And they said, yeah. And he said, well, in my understanding, then God would also allow the children of believers to die too. And he said, for the simple fact is that the believer could show the non-believer how to live and how to handle it, how to trust God and how to look to God. And it was like, there was a silence. I remember on the phone, I was like, you know, and it was, a, it, they got it. It was just in that simple explanation they didn't see it. And it's really what the apostle Paul is going to allude to. And we'll close with, you know, today of even in our suffering, our suffering, you know, isn't something the world looks at it and goes, you know, gosh, you know, that's always, it's always negative. But Paul saw his suffering as an act of worship. And when you can get to that place, and if you believe that God allowed, I mean, God, we are his workmanship in Christ Jesus. And he's working in that. You go, there was something for that suffering. There was, was, there, was there a purpose in Jesus' suffering? Let me just put it to you that way. Yeah. God himself suffered for me and for you. It wasn't purposeless. It was purposeful. And in all of our sufferings, though we don't understand it necessarily at the time, all things really do work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. And even when, you know, and you talk to people who suffered tremendously and then understood the suffering, you know, God's given them revelation of it. They go, and I love this when this happens, they go, Pastor Mike, I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't change a thing. I go, wow. And yet the apostle Paul here, here's, here's why. He says that you may become blameless. And, and really, an understanding in the Greek language here when it talks about being blameless, it means people are going to point their finger at you, but they can point their finger at you, but there's nothing can stick. That, that's really what he's talking about, you know, and getting to the point really in such a way that you're blameless that people aren't even pointing a finger at you any longer. So we have to ask ourselves, you know, today, in light of when we read this, and again, you read it in context. He goes, is there anything going on in your life today that if people pointed their finger at you, it would stick? There's a reason that they could look in your life. And, and, and again, this is between you and the Lord. Because those are those things where God will speak to your conscience. He will say, hey, you know what? There's that thing in your life. It has nothing to do with your salvation, okay? Now, th this is how I can prove to you beyond, I think, 
shadow of doubt that you're not working out your salvation like you're trying to save yourself, as we read here in chapter 2. Because who is Paul writing to? How does he begin chapter 1? To the what? Saints? Did he say the sinners who were at Philippi? Now, if he just said, to you sinners who are at Philippi, you need to repent. I went to the plaza yesterday. There was a kid standing out on the street. He wasn't even in the plaza. He was out on the street, and he had a microphone, and he was yelling, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. And, you know, and, I, and I wanted to go up to him. I said, man, I, I know that you mean well, but you're really, it, it's like a clanging cymbal. I mean, and the reason why is because one was, whatever sound system he was using was so bad it hurt to listen to it. It was, you know, and you're just going, oh my goodness. But you go, but what was it really conveying? And I was, so I tried to listen to, I sat in my truck for a little bit. I rolled the window down. I was just listening to what he was saying. And I go, okay, is that, and, and you go, man, you could, you could tell from what he was saying that his belief was what he was doing. What we were all called to do is, is, you know, since work our way, you know, into the glory of God. And it's so sad because there's so many believers that think and feel that way, not recognizing, you know, that when Jesus hung on the cross and he said, it's finished, it, it's finished, it's done. And, and we can rest in that to understand, you know, that like I said, before the, the foundation of the world ever was, you know, God knew you, you know, to understand election and free will, that those aren't, those aren't diametrically in opposition to each other. They're parallel. They, they parallel each other. They, one comes out of the other. God created us with free will, but God knows full well those who belong to him. It's not as complicated as the church has made it out to be. And, and it's sad. You know, like I said, I love Pastor Chuck Smith. And Chuck, you know, would make it. I was talking to Mike Atkinson about this the other day. And, and it, the realization of this, this truth is that some people can make things really simple and other people can make things really complex. And I think in our world today, because we're pursuing knowledge at the rate that we are, is people think that if they can just dazzle you with their brilliance, that somehow that's how you're going to esteem them. When really, you know, Pastor Chuck was brilliant, but he had such a way of just making the gospel so simple, so understanding, the same way that Jesus did. You think about the people who followed Jesus, for the most part, they were common, ordinary, everyday people. The elitist of society, they didn't want anything to do with him. You know, Paul at Mars Hill, you know, same thing. It's like this, there's the simplicity of the gospel. Then, you know, you can get way out in these, you know, these fringes. And we need to avoid that, you know. And so, uh, again, just being reminded, you know, that people are watching, you know. And if you're following Jesus, you don't have anything to worry about. If you go, uh, we make it our prayer. Jesus taught the disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven. Who is our Father? Our Father. We're children. We follow him. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Dad, what do you want me to do? Show me. And how does he show us? Through his word. So we read the word. We study the word. We come to church. We, we, we gather in fellowship. Verse 15, continuing there, it says, Children without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Those words are really important there. You notice the word crooked. It's the word scolius. And in our English language, we get the word scoliosis. And you understand that. That's a, it describes a medical condition where the spine it bends. And the condition where the spine, and think about this. And that's why there's so much richness to that. The spine can't support the weight. And what he's saying is that the world, you know, is spineless in one sense. And we, you can see where we get these terms. They're, they're, they come from Scripture. It, the world can't support its own weight. It's impossible. It, it morally, it can't support the weight. And ultimately, what does it do? It collapses. We know in Paul's time, just look, the Roman Empire was the by far the greatest empire you know, the world had ever known. And they weren't conquered by an enemy outside. They were conquered from within. It was their own moral failure that led to their destruction. That word perverse, it means to twist and to turn. It's a comparable word there. You know, and most of us would agree we live in a twisted world. That's why we say, man, you're really twisted. You know, and again, without Jesus, we can all recall back to our lives before him. We were twisted. Even Jesus used that term. It was in Matthew's gospel, chapter 17, verse 17. It says, then Jesus answered and said, 
O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? And what does he do? He says, bring him to me and he heals, he heals him. It's pretty obvious that the world's in darkness today. Would you agree? And, it, and it, it's getting darker. But that's not bad news. That's good news for us. 1 John 5.19 puts it like this. It says, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And it's getting darker and darker by the day. And you know what? And I have people go, oh, Pastor Mike, I think the world is getting better. I think it's better than it's ever been. I go, okay. I'm not going to argue with you. Can I just read you some facts off the FBI website? You tell me. Are you aware there's a violent crime in the United States every 26 seconds? There's a murder every 32 minutes in the United States. There's a rape every four minutes in the United States. There's a robbery every minute. Now, I get up on Sunday mornings early, so I'm sitting in my living room and, and putting my notes together, and so I can hear noises, and my dog definitely hears noises, and so I'm sitting there this morning. It's about 5.30. It's still dark outside. I can hear the low rumble of a, of a car, so I walk outside, and there's a white truck, a little look like an old, old Nissan truck parked, and it's got all kinds of stuff loaded in the back of it, and it's parked two doors down at my neighbor's house. So I look and my neighbor across the street, he's in his doorway, you know, and he's standing there and I see him with his porch light and he's watching this person. And uh, then I see across the street, there's a car parked looking, you know, down there. And then all of a sudden the truck just takes off and it's just loaded with all kinds of stuff. Now, I don't know if they were stealing, you know, from my neighbor, but I can tell you this, I mean, it probably wasn't up to any good, you know, and you think that happens every minute, every, I mean, I'm not talking about every two minutes, every three, this is off the FBI website, every minute. So you tell me, is the world becoming a brighter place? You know, you go, no, the facts bear it out. And you go, but should that make us all, oh, no, no. Because think about this, when something gets darker, does whatever's bright have to get brighter in order to shine? Or does it naturally shine brighter when it gets darker? Have you ever used a flashlight during the day? You ever turn a flashlight on in the day? What did it illuminate for you? Nothing. Turn that thing on at night and guess what? And I was going to bring my, my really good flashlight for you to, to try for yourself and see, but um, I'm just saving that for another day. But in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, it says this. It says, then Jesus went about all the cities and the villages, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the kingdom, uh, the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. It says, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. And, and the reason I wanted to share that with you is because you can look at the world and you go, look at the world, it's so dark. And you know what? Forget the world. And even as the church, you know, we love the holy huddle, so to speak. You know, we come in here and we compare flashlights, you know, we, and we, you know, and you go, but when you're amongst light, there's no joy. I mean, if all the lights on, if I had brought my flashlight today, it still would have lit things up in here because it's so bright, but it, you couldn't really appreciate it because it would be light against light. And that's, that's part of sometimes when you find that the church begins to suffer is when all we're doing is illuminating light with light. We love fellowship. We love coming together. We're doing this. You go, but if you really want to experience joy in your life, I mean, a deep, deep satisfaction, you would find that by fulfilling the purpose for which God created you for to begin with. I think you'd agree with that. With anything. Everything functions best when it's being utilized for what it was created for. And you and I were created to glorify God. You and I are on this planet still as Jesus, when he came into this world, he came to die for sinners, right? That's what he came for. You and I are still here to reach sinners for Christ. That doesn't mean that we don't have fellowship. doesn't mean we don't have church. No, we do all those things. But our deep joy is going to really come when we can shine. People go, man, they really shine. Well, where do you and I shine? According to God, not according to me, not according to you. Where you will shine best is in the darkness. And for some of you today, that's, that is an awakening. Because some of you, you, know, you are true to your heart that you're going, you know what, I'm not satisfied and I can't figure out what it is. I, I find that, you know, again, uh, 
things in this world, they, they frustrate me. You go, things that I'm doing, you go, man, I, just, I would just love to have that deep, satisfying joy. And it's yours when you do the will of God. And we're here as lights in this world to shine in the darkness. We're not shining when we're standing in the light. We shine when we're in the darkness. And so he says, going on there in verse 36, he said, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. So then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Now it starts to make sense what Jesus is talking about here through the apostle Paul. John chapter eight, verse 12 Jesus speaking, he says, then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Because you're walking in the light as he himself is in the light. Again, the world is getting darker, but what happens? <laughs> what happens to the light? It just gets brighter. That, that's what's going to happen. You don't have to try to get brighter. You naturally will be lighter as the world gets darker. The key is, will you just not put a lampshade over your faith. Live it out. Don't live in fear. Perfect love casts out fear. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, Jesus puts it like this. He says, you're the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to who? To all who are in the house, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Is it safe to say that we were never called to blend in? But we're called to what? To stand out. Yeah. To lead people out of darkness. I, I, when I was a youth pastor here, I, I took a trip with um, our associate youth pastor and a guy in the church, and we went, we went to Mount Whitney. And we climbed Mount Whitney and... and uh, I can't say that it was fun. Can't say that I'd ever, I never have done it again because I didn't really enjoy it that time. It was like going to Mars. There wasn't even a tree up there. It was just a bunch of boulders. I got up there and I was like, what is this place? This is not even earth. I mean, there wasn't life up there at all. It was just rocks. That's all the thing, thing was. And uh, so I decided, you know, I'm going to get off this mountain as fast as I can. So I started running down. They had these 99 switchbacks to where our base camp was at like 10,000 feet. So I said, I'll meet you guys at camp. So I ran, I was running down the hill. When I got to the base camp, uh, they got there and uh, my toe was killing me on my right, my right foot. Well, from going down the hill, I kept stubbing my toe into my boot. And I guess it's a common thing that happens if you're a hiker, which that's why another reason I don't want to be a hiker. It hurt. And, uh, but we were going downhill. And so we load up our packs and stuff and we're starting to walk down. Well, it's, it's getting dark. And so we have headlamps. So we turn our headlamps on. And so I'm walking and my foot hurts so bad. And I'm so tired from this trip. And I'm walking down this hill and I'm scuffing my feet. You're just, you're not picking your feet up. I'm so tired. I'm just going like this, but I'm going down. And we got like 14 miles back to the car and I'm doing this down and I keep stubbing my toe and my, and it just, I mean, it is so painful. So finally, I mean, I'm just like, I'm delusional. So I'm, I'm, I'm like this. We're coming around this, and I see Dave's in front of me, and, and Lawrence is in front of him, and the trails kind of go like this, and I'm just walking along, and I'm just like, uh, and Dave turns around, and he starts laughing at me. I said, what's so funny? He says, your headlamp's burnt out. And I said, what? He goes, your headlamp. So I take it off. There's no light there. And I, we started laughing and I said, but you know, it's funny. I go, I didn't even need a light because I was looking at your light because I was just, I was following him. He was in front of me. I didn't need, I didn't need, any light. I was in complete darkness. I felt like I was in complete darkness. But the amazing thing was I was moving along by his light. And, and that's one of those things that encourages me at times when you wonder, you go, God, I, I mean, this is not making any sense to me. You know, you're, you go through seasons of life and you go, Man, I just feel like, you know, I mean, is there any purpose for this? And, and you, don't, you don't know. Somebody's looking at your light. They're, they're either in complete darkness because of sin or they're not saved, whatever it is. 
but man, they are, they are only making it because they are following your light. And that's one of the things that the Apostle Paul is, is reminding us of, that the church then and the church today, of the responsibility, and not just the responsibility, but the privilege that's ours. Because we really don't know who's looking. But we need to live our lives as what? As if everybody was watching us. You know, the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verse 3, I love this. He says, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You know, I read an article this week. There was a, a fishing boat that capsized off the Gulf of Mexico, and the crew was in the water. They'd been in the water for 26 hours. They'd called the, the search off, and then they went back the next day. It got dark. They were getting ready to call the search off, and they saw this little tiny light. And they, I mean, literally the, the helicopter, it was so dark, they hovered over it at 50 feet and they still couldn't tell out what it was. They just kept seeing this light. And then finally, the light hit something. They realized that it was a, it was a life vest and they were able to rescue this entire crew. And all that it was, was the, the captain of the boat on his life jacket. He had one of those cheap little uh, flashlights that they just have dangling on a string. He just turned it on. And it was just in the water. And these guys in a helicopter, I mean, in a storm, saw that little tiny flashlight. You know, it's been said, you know, that you can see a, a candlelight for up to 10 miles. I think it was during the Second World War, you know, that they made you know, the people that they couldn't even light a candle in their home for fear that the enemy could see it from over a, a distance of 10 miles away. A candle. And you think about the light that's in us, you know, living in a world that's full of darkness. Verse 15, he goes on, he says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. We get it. We're supposed to shine. But let our lights so shine before all men. That's what Paul is telling us here. And yet, you know, you think about it in life. People that are outspoken, you know, about causes, Usually, you know, if you watch something that has to do with cancer and the people that really have the biggest impact, there are people who survived cancer, who've been really impacted from it, and they become a tremendous voice. Uh, Mike and I just were at an event for Magdalene Hope uh, for a ministry that, that works to eradicate, you know, um, prostitution and human trafficking. And you talk to the people who are involved with that, and they've come out of it. They, they know what it's like. And so there's a passion, you know, in their life, you know, and, and, and it's, it's if Paul, he's, he's helping us understand that, that you and I were once in darkness. Do you, do you remember what it was truly like to live in darkness? And, and if you really understood that, you know, it's like Charles Spurgeon said, he goes in, in letters to his students, he goes, if I could take every student that I, I've ever had, he goes, before I'd ever send them into the ministry full time and hang them over the pit of hell for 24 hours. Because that, that would be my, my desire, my hope, is that you would understand what you're doing when you preach the gospel. That man, you, you literally are dealing with heaven and hell issues. And they're, they're real and they're for keeps. And we have this light and we have a responsibility. We have a privilege. And if we really recognize you know, the darkness that we've come out of, and everybody has come out of some form of darkness because we were all lost in our sin. And yet God called us to repent and to be born again. And so it's not to go back into that, but to recognize where we came from. And usually what that helps us do is to have compassion on people who are what? They're still trapped in those sins because we say what? For the grace of God, go I. And so again, what a privilege it is, you know, whether it's a drug addict, like I said, or a prostitute, you name it, you know, people that have been saved or delivered, you know, from most, whatever it is that they were delivered from, and they become the greatest advocates. I like what Jesus said, you know, in Luke 7, 47, he says, therefore, I say to you, remember the, the woman who um, Jesus you know, forgave of her sins. He says, uh, her sins, which were many, he says, are forgiven for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. So here's this woman, she's anointing Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears, and she's crying at his feet. And they're going, if he knew the woman that was at, you know, his feet, I mean, he'd, he'd make her get up and, you know, leave. And Jesus knowing their thoughts, and he says, you know, those who, who love little, you know, have been forgiven little, and those who love much have been forgiven much. And I think that's a great reminder for our lives. If, you, if you're someone who's, you know, easily that you forgive us because you remember how easily God forgave you or how much he's forgiven you. 
And then who are we to hold that against someone else? And yet, you know, when we think about light, it's not my light, it's not your light. We're like the moon to the sun. God's only called us to reflect his light. You know, am I obscuring the view? Are you obscuring? Am I blocking the view? Are you blocking the view? That's the, really the question you know, that we need to ask ourselves. But the closer we get to something, what? The more we'll radiate it. You know, I was telling you before I, I got these glow-in-the-dark balls for my dog to play at night, and I take my really good flashlight, and uh, I, I go take them out there at night. They don't have to be, I don't have to have those things sitting out in the sun at all. I take my really good flashlight, I hold it in my hand, I turn it on for about 30 seconds, and that thing is like glowing. And so I can play ball with her for about 15, 20 minutes. She can find the ball, you know, in the dark and you go, but that thing is so close to that light, man, it, 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 it glows in the dark. And, and you know that as well as I do. When you spend time with Jesus, you spend time really searching him and seeking after him and you start glowing in the dark too. And, and again, and that's not, you know, trying to earn our way into heaven. That's appreciating this great salvation that God has gifted to me and you. Verse 16, he goes on, he says, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ and I might not, might not have run in vain or labored in vain. He's saying, you know, on the day that we all stand before Jesus, he says, I want to rejoice with you and in you. You know, I want to be standing right there with you. Rejoicing, because that's what we'll be doing all day long when we're finally in the presence of God. And then he closes with this in verses 17 and 18. He says, and yes, if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. So he's going, if I'm suffering, I'm, I'm doing it for you. And I'm, and I'm pouring my life out, not only for you, but on you in that regard. And he says, and I'm glad and I rejoice with you. I think it's a great reminder of what we celebrated on Mother's Day. It's that sacrifice that you do in love. When you love somebody, you sacrifice for them. And you don't go, oh, and then, you know, you don't hold it over them. You go, no, you, you empower them with that. You do it because you're motivated by love. It's not what you get in return. It's what you have to offer. And he says, and I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. He said, for the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. And so what does Paul do? He sees his suffering as worship. Are we going to go through hard things when we try to shine in the dark? Yeah. Are people going to appreciate it? Probably not. Not at that moment. But in the long run, they will. And yet Paul has the perfect perspective. The same thing that we read in the book of Hebrews. It says of Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy that's set before you, that you're pleasing God by loving other people. He said, one day, one day, it will all make sense. Like I said, most people associate, you know, sorrow with suffering, but yet Paul looks at suffering and sacrifices as doorways into a deeper joy in his personal relationship with God. I close, I'll read you this, you know, a passage that many of us are familiar with. It kind of makes more sense, I think, when you look at chapter 2 of Philippians is when you read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, he says, which is your reasonable service. And, and if you read your translation there, what it's, it says, it's the reasonable thing to do. It's the logical thing to do. If you appreciate what Jesus has done for you, you won't just go on living for yourself, but you will start living for God in your life. That will be your greatest joy. And he says, and don't be conformed to the world. Don't be pressed into the darkness, you might say. He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The closer you get to Jesus, the more you will radiate his life and his love. He says that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. That'll happen as you and I draw close to Jesus. And that's what Paul is exhorting the church to do. And then you know, as you continue on, then he starts, you know, uh, remembering, you know, people who are living this kind of a life. And my hope, my prayer for me and you, you know, I love that expression that says, you know, when you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. We'll send you out with prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, we ask you today, fill us afresh with your spirit to help us to live lives that are pleasing to you to truly to live out lord in our life what you're working in and lord if we believe it lord to live it 
Let, let our yes be yes, our no be no. Uh, Lord, let our, our, our walk match our talk and our talk match our walk. And Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy when it doesn't. But Lord, we're again just reminded today, Lord, that you have a plan, you've got a purpose for our life. That Lord, even before the heavens and the earth were created, God, you knew us and you fashioned us. But yet, Lord, we didn't know. And so, Lord, there was a day when we said yes to you, that we opened our heart to you. And so, Lord, now we're asking you to continue that work, to work in us, Lord, those things that you desire to shine from us and through us as we minister to the world around us. And so, Lord, have your way with us, Lord, this week. Lord, help us to be sensitive to the leading of your spirit. Help us to spend time with you alone, with others, Lord. And God, help us to recognize, Lord, maybe more than ever before in the world, people are looking, people are watching, they're looking for a better way. Lord, help us to, to have lives that are, that are lived worthy of you, that with everything that we say, everything that we do, Lord, it reminds people, Lord, of your love, who you are, Lord, and what you came to do. May Jesus, Lord, you shine in and through us this week, we pray for your glory and our good as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, church,